screen. And thank you, Betsy, for jumping up and <laughs> taking care of that. Well, it was supposed to be Pat today, but Pat's sick. Um, and Betsy just got back last night. So we weren't expecting Betsy to be here, but thank you, Betsy, <laughs> for being here. Um, <laughs> All righty. So verse 1. This is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, he was forming locusts when the latter growth was just beginning to sprout. And behold, it was the latter growth after the king's mowings. When they had finished eating the grass of the land, I said, O Lord God, please forgive. How can Jacob stand? He is so small. The Lord relented concerning this. It shall not be, said the Lord. This is what the Lord showed me. Behold, the Lord God was calling for a judgment by fire, and it devoured the great deep and was eating up the land. Then I said, O Lord God, please cease. How can Jacob stand? He is so small. The Lord relented concerning this. This also shall not be, said the Lord God. This is what he showed me. Behold, the Lord was standing beside a wall built with a plumb line, with a plumb line in his hand. And the Lord said to me, Amos, what do you see? And I said, a plumb line. Then the Lord said, behold, I am setting a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel. I will never again pass by them. The high places of Isaac shall be made desolate. And the sanctuaries of Israel shall be laid waste. And I will rise against the house of Jeroboam with the sword. May God bless the reading of his word. So today we continue on through Amos. Um, And as we can see, Amos is going to be having a few visions. And with these visions comes the visions, the reality of judgment. But we also notice other things when it comes to this. And it's really interesting, the dynamic that we see within these verses. So let's go ahead and and we'll just start it off. Verse 1, this is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, he was forming locusts when the latter growth was just beginning to sprout. And behold, it was the latter growth after the king's mowings. When they had finished eating the grass of the land, I said, O Lord God, please forgive. How can Jacob stand? He is so small. And the Lord relented concerning this. It shall not be, said the Lord. Now we'll go to our handy dandy map. And again, this one for these visions, we're looking at Israel in particular. So all of this area right here is a line between Judah and Israel. But all of that is what we're looking at. Um, And these are the visions against that particular nation, against that land. So this chapter begins with Amos, who is given a vision. There are technically four visions within this segment of Scripture, um, and it ends at 8.3, chapter 8, verse 3. The first and the second visions share a common thread in presentation, and the third and fourth share a common thread as well. The first and second each give, uh, begin with God showing Amos something, and then Amos intercedes, and then God relents. We see that specifically with the first vision. We notice Amos is given a vision of locusts. Uh, The coming of locusts was a curse type in the law. As such, God forms these locusts in great numbers. Such a swarm to come upon a nation, especially during the time period, which would result in agricultural disaster. This group of locusts were coming during the latter growth was beginning to sprout. This latter growth was reserved for the farmers and their livestock. Without such, they would have great difficulties and perhaps starvation into the next year. We also notice that the growth which is attacked comes after the king's mowings. 
We do not necessarily have any other evidence of a king's mowings within the scriptures, but it appears that during the time of Jeroboam II, the king received the first portion of harvest, which would go toward the army and the king's household. Upon seeing the calamity which is to take place, Amos pleads with God to not let it happen. We notice he asks first for forgiveness, followed by, how can Jacob stand? Calling Israel Jacob may be a method of describing the nation as a person rather than a nation to further emphasize the smallness of the nation compared to Almighty God and His judgment. This is the ultimate conclusion Amos comes to in the intercession. He is so small. At this point, the Lord relents. He accepts Amos' intercession and decides to withhold the judgment. This kind of withholding is not uncommon within the scriptures. If people turn in repentance, or even if individuals intercede on behalf of others, God will often hold back on his judgments. This is similar to the gospel itself, for by God's grace, we were not destroyed in wrath prior to conversion. Instead, God was patient in his wrath, and ultimately for those who repent and place their faith in Christ, his wrath is directed toward our intercessor who is Christ. Now verse 4, this is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, the Lord God was calling for judgment by fire, and it devoured the great heap and was eating up the land. Then I said, O Lord, God, please cease. How can Jacob stand? He is so small. The Lord relented concerning this. This also shall not be, said the Lord God. This next vision is similar to the first. We see again how Amos has shown a vision of judgment. We notice that in this particular vision is not that God is forming this judgment the way he did with the locusts. Um, Instead, he was calling for this judgment by fire. This would be a well-known judgment to those who knew the law, as judgment by fire was another curse type in the law for disobedience. This judgment of fire was so severe that it devoured the great deep And was eating up the land. In other words, it was a complete destruction of both land and sea. Nothing would survive this kind of devastation. There would be no place to hide from the wrath of God. So it is that Amos, seeing the devastation, intercedes again on behalf of the people in the same way as he does in the previous vision. He pleads for God to relent, again recognizing that Jacob, Israel, will not be able to stand He is so small compared to the judgment to come. Thus, God again relents. This event will not occur according to the word of the Lord. Now we come to verses 7 through 9. This is what he showed me. Behold, the Lord was standing beside a wall built with a plumb line, with a plumb line in his hand. And the Lord said to me, Amos, what do you see? And I said, a plumb line. Then the Lord said, behold... I am setting a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel. I will never again pass them by. The high places of Isaac shall be made desolate, and the sanctuaries of Israel shall be laid waste, and I will rise against the house of Jeroboam with the sword. We now come to the third vision, and as was previously said, the third and the fourth visions are different in delivery than the first and the second. Whereas we previously noticed the vision... Amos' intercession, and then God's relent. Now we receive the vision, God interrogating Amos, Amos' response, and then God's explanation. So, 
what occurs with this vision? We notice that the Lord is standing beside a wall. At this point, we have a bit of debate over the text, and I hate to get technical, but we're going to have to. The ESV translates the next portion as a wall built with a plumb line, with a plumb line in his hand. Another way to translate the text is a wall built with tin, with tin in his hand. The reason for the discrepancy is that scholars were unsure how to translate the word translated as plumb line um, or tin because it could be understood to mean either lead or tin. Lead was used for plumb lines, so many translations went with plumb lines. Unfortunately, the term for plumb line is completely different than the one here. Um, So it seems better to translate it as tin, especially since the word used is Akkadian. um, And we'll see why it's important, the language, the Akkadian language in a second. So what then is being understood here? It focuses on the reality that Akkadian was the language of a certain nation, and that nation was Assyria. In other words, God is saying this tin is representative of Assyria. God then asks what Amos sees, and Amos responds with tin. We notice that usually Amos' response tends to be a longer sentence, but this time he says one word, tin. At this point is when, we, when the point comes across, when God says, Behold, I am setting tin in the midst of my people Israel. In other words, he is already casting judgment on Israel. And this time there will be no intercession. God's grace has come to an end. And he will use tin in order to do this. With tin being Assyria. This is what we read further. I will never again pass over by them. Again, the judgment is set. This time there will be no relenting. The people in their atrocities have continued in their falsehoods and sin without any repentance. And because of this, God will judge them severely. The focus of the judgment will be on the high places of Isaac, which will be made desolate, and the sanctuaries of Israel shall be laid waste. These places of worship will be struck down by the Lord. He will end their false worship and their pilgrimages to these religious locations. Finally, the destruction will come not only on the failed religious components, but especially upon the rulers. We notice Amos specifically calls out Jeroboam. Jeroboam the first, as we remember, was the first king of Israel when it divided. But we also remember that during the prophetic ministry of Amos, Jeroboam the second was king. Regardless, the Lord will end the reign of Jeroboam's line in Israel through the complete destruction of the nation. So the main point of these verses are to reflect on two things. The first is God's grace, mercy, and patience. In either of the first two visions, Amos intercedes and God relents, just as he did with Moses on Sinai. God could have judged the people through locusts and fires, but instead was gracious and merciful to them. In the end, however, God's grace, his mercy, and patience fades, and judgment will certainly come. It will not be through locusts, though, nor will it be through fire but through the tin, which leads us to think of Assyria, who has already been alluded to previously in Amos. So what are some application points we can come from this? The first is intercession. Within the scriptures, there is clear evidence of those who are God-fearing individuals interceding on behalf of others. 
Sometimes we may think that such intercession is only on behalf of those who are good or family members, which is what we see with Job and with David especially. However, what we want to realize is that intercession does not only occur for those who are good, but also for those who are sinners and technically evil. In Amos' day, we experienced such intercession. Amos recognized the great wrath of God, his great righteousness, and the great sin of the people. He knew that if God's judgment was going to come upon Israel, then Israel would be destroyed. Upon seeing the judgment to come, Amos quickly pleased on behalf of the people. Israel is too small. Israel cannot stand such a judgment. What do we see from Amos? We see compassion. Amos recognizes the sin of the people around him. He recognizes their immorality, their unrighteousness, the injustice. He has been a vocal proponent against these very things. He has been warning the people, turn, repent, devastation is at hand. That is what we have been witnessing from Amos so far through his prophecies. Today, we see Amos in another light, and perhaps it is the best light that we could. Oftentimes we assume doom and gloom judgments are made by individuals without heart. They just want to make everyone feel bad. They don't really care about people. Or at least that is what the world wants us to believe, that is. Perhaps one of the great deceptions when it comes to judgment, that judgment is mean and it's evil in its own right. Yet if we were to open the heart of Amos, we would not find a man who is altogether mean-spirited. Yes, he has spoken harshly, at times out of necessity, to drive a point home. He, along with the other prophets, all managed to do this. They all spoke harshly to harsh and corrupt people. Yet when Amos is able to see the judgment, again, we see the heart of the prophet, which is compassion, even on this wicked society. We see from his two responses that he recognizes the weakness of Israel and pleads with God on their behalf. Thus, we see a man who is willing to speak the hard things, not to be mean, not to cause pain, but because he loves first God and second the people. It is this love for his fellow countrymen that we see his intercession take place. What happens when he intercedes? God relents. And I alluded to this, but this is similar to Moses on Sinai. Consider what we read from Exodus. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people, whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf, and have worshipped it, and sacrificed to it, and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone, that let my, ma- my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, 
With evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth. Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven. And all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring and they will inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of, bringing upon his people. We notice here a Moses interceding on behalf of the people. Though God was willing to destroy them and create a great nation after Moses, Moses still made intercession on their behalf. We notice the same result as with Amos, and that was that God turned, he relented. He turned away his anger. In this we have a great application. We know that we are to pray for each other. To intercede on behalf of one another before our God. When something happens in life, one of the most important things that we can do for each other, above perhaps almost anything else, is to pray. To go before our God on each other's behalf. Sometimes we forget that when we pray for each other, that is what we're doing. We are going to God and speaking with Him on behalf of each other. Too often, prayer can be something other than what it is. But when we consider it, prayer is incredibly important for ourselves and each other. Now, it is easy for us to intercede on behalf of those we like. And those who we consider to be good. But notice, Moses and Amos do not intercede only on behalf of those they like, or those who are even good. Instead, they intercede on behalf of those who are evil, those who are sinners. This is similar to Jesus himself when he is on the cross. Forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. It's similar to his teaching, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And later, Paul, bless those who persecute you. This is much harder to do than we like to believe. It is hard to go to God on behalf of those we struggle against. Those who would take our love and stomp on it. Or take the fire that we have for God and douse it. It is hard to stand firm in love when there is so much hatred. It is hard to pray for blessings on those who do not seek good. Do not seek love, do not seek righteousness, and do not seek justice. It reminds me of an experience I once had when I was working at Acorn in Wellsboro. There was a customer who was a friend of our store managers. He would come in and be kind of cocky and mock us and be generally very mean. I'm sure you've all experienced that at least once. One time he was visiting the store and I walked back to where he and my store manager were talking to ask my manager a question. And right when I began to talk, he slaps me right across the face. Kid you not. Didn't say anything, just slapped. No warning, nothing. Just bam. Now I'll be honest, I was mad. But instead of saying anything, I just walked away. Didn't say a thing back. Walked away. Later on, I would pray for him despite this incident and the many other incidents that had occurred and would occur with him. Well, one day, I found out that this individual had gotten into some trouble 
I remember when he came into the store for the first time after it happened, and he just looked so miserable. So he comes up to the counter to pay for his drink, and in all honesty, I know I could have just laid it into him. I know everyone else was. I could have mocked him all day long. Instead, however, I looked at him and said something similar to, I am sorry that you are going through this, and I hope that things get better. You want to know something? From that moment on, he never mocked me again. Not once. It was like a talking to a totally different person after that. Sometimes being kind to someone, interceding in such a way, can make a good impact on someone else's life. So it is that we are to intercede even for those who are like this individual. Our motivation is found within the scriptures. God intercedes for believers. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, while we were yet sinners. If God could forbear his punishment on us until our time of repentance and faith, then we should have kindness on those who remain in their sin. Not everyone has had such experiences with people, but that, that, but that does not mean there is no place for intercession. Do you know a very practical way to intercede for others? I would say we can intercede for our community in Westfield and our nation too. Our society is in peril, just as it was in ancient Israel. We recognize that if the society continues down this course, there will be judgment. And some would say it's already begun this judgment. What should we do knowing this? Intercede. Pray for the community, the society. Pray that God would forbear his judgment because we know no society can last against the wrath of God. Pray for Westfield. Pray for Pennsylvania. Pray for the United States that God would delay his judgment. It is not enough to pray for revival. We must also intercede on the community, on the society, by praying for God to withhold his judgment on the sins that the community is doing. Intercession is not an easy thing. However, we do have biblical precedence for each other and for the sinner. The goal of intercession is that those who we intercede for will repent and place their faith in Jesus Christ. The goal for intercession is reconciliation. So pray for sinners. Pray for each other. Go to God on behalf of others in your love for them. And know that such prayers, such supplications, and such intercessions are being heard by our God. Now this leads to the second point, and this is going to be where it gets fun. I don't mean fun. It's going to be complicated. (laughs) On patience, judgment, and non-intercession. Sometimes we can think of judgment, of the judgment of God as unfair. We can imagine the ancient Canaanites, for example. When God gives the land of the Canaanites to the twelve tribes, and we think of the bloody conquest, we can almost fall into the trap of thinking God is unfair. How can he just tell the ancient tribes to take over land through warfare and bloodshed? Has any of you ever thought that at all? 
Okay. Just making sure someone – because my generation thinks about it all the time. It's like a thing against God. I don't know. Anyway, the point is that would be a mischaracterization of God and what actually happened. Sometimes we forget something very important, and that is just how patient God was with the Canaanites before driving them from the land. Consider something. Why didn't God give Abraham the land? Abraham the person. Why was there a waiting period of many generations before the offspring of Abraham even inherited the land? Why was that? The answer to this comes from a passage in Genesis, which reads, As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. What do we notice? The very last verse, the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. God does not simply cast judgment on the nation. Instead, he is patient with his judgment. He could easily destroy the people in their wickedness, but he doesn't. So for generations, the Amorites continue to sin, continue in their ways, and eventually God's patience ends, and the twelve tribes come and drive them from the land. And the Amorites are the Canaanites. Same thing. This is the same thing we see in today's text when it comes to the intercession on behalf of the people. The prophet Amos did intercede on behalf of the people and God relented his judgment. However, we also learn that in the end, God does not relent forever. He will send a judgment if there is no repentance, if there is no faith. So it is, we also see the scriptures are clear on non-intercession as well. We see this in the third vision Amos receives. There we notice that Amos is shown the tin wall and the tin in God's hand. The conclusion is not God relenting in the vision, but the judgment will in fact befall the nation. And because of this, we do not see Amos interceding. Instead, it is an acceptance that judgment will occur. Amos recognizes God's patience has ended. This might cause some of us to remember a time... Uh, when we were in 1 John. At the end of 1 John, we read the following. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death, there is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. What we see here from 1 John 5 is a recognition of intercession on behalf of fellow Christians when they stumble into sin. However, John is silent when it comes to intercession for those who fall into sin leading to death. In this, John recognizes that for believers, there may be moments when praying for sinners is simply not something God wants us to do. 
that God's judgment at times cannot be stopped, nor can it be taken away. There are times when no amount of intercession will cause God to relent. John does not say not to pray, not to intercede on behalf of such individuals. Instead, he leaves it open to the Christian to know when not to pray, when not to intercede on behalf of sinners. Notice, this is not at all about stumbling Christians. We are to pray for Christians who stumble into sin and intercede on their behalf. Instead, this is for those who are in sin which leads to death. In 1 John, there were three things that were condemned, as we remember. The first is incorrect belief in Jesus. The second is incorrect lifestyle, ethics, and morality. And the third is incorrect relationally by not loving, living in love toward one another, especially fellow believers. If one falls into these, they are in sin that leads to death naturally. It is not a mix and match. Christians must seek truth in all these things. Truth in Christ, truth in lifestyle, ethics, and morality, and truth relationally toward one another in love. So it is, like Amos and like many of the prophets, there may be times when we should cease our intercession for, for unbelievers. Unfortunately, the scriptures do not give us a moment when we should cease. Nor can I give you a definitive moment when you should no longer pray for an unbeliever or an unbelieving nation. Instead, we are to trust God to place it on our hearts when to stop praying, just as we trust him to place it in our hearts when to pray. When we can trust him, we can trust him to give us who to, who to pray for and who not to pray for. Yet what we should never say is that God is unjust for his judgment on people. God could easily judge each of us. He could judge any sinner at any time and be completely just. In fact, it is his divine patience with sinners which allows any of us to live at all. He is patient. He is kind. He is gracious. He is merciful, even to the sinner by not placing his wrath on them, even after their first sin, because he could do that. It is not that God never had forbearance in judgment against sinners. The truth is, he has always had forbearance in his judgment against sinners from their very first sin onward. Thus, when we consider the judgment of God in this way, it should give us a greater peace. It should remind us when we consider Amos and the conclusion of the judgment of God on the people, that God was patient with the people. He could have sent locusts, he could have sent fire, but instead he was patient to them, showing them grace and mercy, and instead of turning toward God, the people continued on in their sin. Which is the exact same thing which happens in our own societies today. God has given his patience to us, and our societies are deserving of judgment if they do not repent. So the point is to remember God's patience in his justice. To also remember to intercede for others, to always intercede, to always, I emphasize always, intercede for fellow Christians who are in need of intercession and to intercede for the world while recognizing that God may place it on our hearts not to intercede any longer for the world. In such times, pray for peace. 
remembering his good grace, mercy, patience, and kindness on all people at all times. So, it is with this we consider the gospel of Jesus Christ. Through him we have our own intercessor before God. It is through his intercession we come to know our God as our Father. And it is through his intercession we may not fear the wrath to come, but come to know the love of our God. Through him, then, we not only have an intercessor on our behalf, but also are able to know how to intercede on behalf of others and each other. It is through this we remember God's own patience on us, granting us the gospel of life when we deserved death. The gospel begins with our origins. God created the cosmos according to the power of his word. Last of all, he created humanity to bear his image. Because God is a God of love, reason, knows, can be known, has personhood, is moral, and displays his loving kindness, his hesed, we can as well. It is because of this we find the dignity, the sanctity, and worth of human life. But like God, we are also able to choose. We could either choose to follow God into obedience into life, or follow sin into disobedience and death. We, the human race, chose the latter. And because of that, our relationships with God, each other, ourselves, and the world are all broken. Likewise, it is because of this sin we have a moral guilt before our God. Not a feeling of guilt, but true guilt before a righteous judge, just as the nation of Israel in the old. Thankfully, God did not leave us in this place of darkness forever. Instead, he sent his light and spoke his word into the darkness, and that is Jesus Christ. Jesus lived, died, and rose again in time, space, history, and flesh. It is by his blood we are cleansed from our sins. We are redeemed through his sacrifice on the cross, and our redemption begins to be restored through him. His victory in life over death becomes our victory in life and over death. All that is required of us is obedience in two things. The first is repentance. We are to live lifestyles of repentance away from sin and toward God. We are to live our lives for the glory of God. We can know what glorifies God through the life of Christ, the revelation of the scriptures, and by walking in step with the Spirit who indwells all believers in love. The second is faith in Christ. We are to recognize our complete and total dependence upon the Son of God for our salvation. It is not what we do, but what Christ has done which saves us from the judgment we deserve because of our sin. We are to recognize that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to the scriptures alone, for the glory of God alone. For those who are disobedient in these things, they remain in condemnation for their sins. Those who do not confess their sins as sin and continue to live a lifestyle of sin, instead of repentance, remain in darkness. Their deeds, even their most righteous acts, are as filthy rags before God. Therefore, without any advocate on their behalf, they will experience the judgment of God for their sins. Yet, we know that there is hope. For though we are all in this state prior to conversion, we can be sure that God has made a way through Christ. For those who are obedient in these things, there is no longer condemnation but love. Those who are in Christ experience the love of the Father that is reserved only for the Son. They become God's children. It is this in this life they have 
victory over sin by the power of the Spirit in them. And in the next life, they inherit an eternal kingdom where they will experience the peace of God forevermore. My hope is that we would continue to intercede on each other's behalf. That if God should place it on our hearts, we would intercede on behalf of unbelievers, on behalf of an unbelieving society and an unbelieving nation. That we would be bold enough to do so even when it is painful, even when to intercede is hard, and that we would remember our own intercessor, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who intercedes on our behalf day and night. It is in him we find our comfort, our hope, our rest, and our assurance. Amen. Let us go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you. We thank you for the intercession that we have through Jesus Christ, because it is through him that we find redemption. It is through him that your wrath is diverted. You hear your Son, Lord, and we are thankful that you do, for it is by him that we are saved. And so, Lord, let us cling to this. Let us cling to the covenant which we have through your Son, Jesus Christ, and be emboldened to go to you in prayer for each other and intercession for each other and the world. In your Son's name we pray. Amen. Please